pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. This evening I'd like to begin to explore some particular aspects of the third domain, the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of states of mind. And this evening, particularly looking at mindful awareness and the transformation of emotional states. A few years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers uh, that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist traditions and different lineages. In one of our discussions, the question came up, what is Buddhism? And the Dalai Lama, who was one of uh, the guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, nibbana, being the complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this was possible. A few years ago now, when I sat with one of my teachers, Sayada Upandita, and then more recently when I sat, practiced with my uh, teacher, Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers spoke in very similar ways of the same possibility over and over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha also speaks of freedom in this same way, many, many times. As our confidence grows, as it grows and deepens, we too begin to know that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here we all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, of the heart. Here in retreat and outside of retreat, you come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of, minds, of mind increase 
others decrease. And you begin to find that at least to some degree, you've let go of what is unwholesome. You've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what is harmful to yourself, what's harmful to others. And we find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and the practice deepens. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now. This grows. And our confidence grows in relationship to our deepest goals. Our confidence begins to take a deeper root. And this is from the Buddha. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha, the heart-mind of a Buddha seeing only suffering and the end of suffering, and encouraging, exhorting those heading towards suffering to take care, to pay attention, rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering and really rejoicing for them. This approach to life, this way of life, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within one, this feeling of, I can do it, it can be done. Over the years of my own practice, there have been times when I've felt various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and in relationship to the practices. And when I've been very able to be honest with myself, I would see that most of the time it was because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teaching. And I also found that when I've been really filled with confidence in myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. 
my Burmese teacher, Pawak Sayadaw, says that we must always, always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. And this is what the, that this is really what the Buddha taught. At one point when I was practicing with him, I went in for a practice interview and I said to him, this is hard. This is really hard. And he looked at me with his beautiful smile, his great kind face and voice, and he said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And because of that, at that moment, in those next days, it wasn't. And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are really filled with this approach to practice. So this evening, we'll explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise within our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work, work with these states in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. He left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion. His search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longing, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many many lifetimes experiences. Some of these we may have seen, met with the heart of metta and maybe mindfully investigated. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away the skeletons in the closet, so to say, when they appear. And this is important to remember, when they appear. It's not about dredging up, digging up afflictive states of mind. Maybe there are some people uh, who seem to find a really true happiness a true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons. 
I've never met anyone like that. I don't know if you have. If they're such a person, that's fine for them. But really, most of us need to take a look. Most of us need to discover these so-called skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness, a true ease of well-being in our own life. Or we'll just continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look in the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly, for a long time. And this is a rendition of the myth of Sisyphus by Stephen Mitchell that speaks of this. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upwards. Life is unimaginable without it looming above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurdle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool, this tool of mindfulness, this tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence to be able to see clearly and to be able to go home. Our vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta and karuna, compassion, teach us, give us the tools to open to our experience from the heart of kindness and patience, from the heart of acceptance and compassion in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. This is really such an amazing process. This process of learning to open to our experience from the deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached to see just what's right here, right now, and to begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We notice. We note how it is in this present moment. The breath, the body, mental states, 
the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this present moment. With this tool of mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, strong desire, really have no more control over us. The reactive habitual need to, for instance, analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or trying to fix, or ignore, or the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, maybe even a kind of cavalier attitude about difficult mind states. The, oh, it's nothing really kind of attitude. These reactive habit patterns in themselves begin to be seen and met with the heart of kindness in order to be seen clearly or seen through, we might say. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive habit patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of connecting and knowing This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. We can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years ago or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying from the time time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And of course, as you well know by now, it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen and deepen mindful awareness and concentration and continue cultivating the patient heart of kindness and compassion, It's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the clearest depth of truth to be seen and known. As each of you are becoming more and more familiar with, we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits 
conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be clearly seen. And, as we know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest takes care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Even sometimes fear and resistance towards opening to the energy of kindness, metta itself. Anxiety, tension, worry, doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance resistance based in fear. And this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work. We practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourself. In through this process of opening to and letting go of, this process of relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habitual patterns of suffering, letting go of, relinquishing our addictions of mind, we could say. And this is from the great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj. Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe them. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something that probably you've all heard many times. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So I'd like to take a bit of a further look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering which is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative. Related. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachment, sadness, etc., And yet, we so often take the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things. Taking our experience and 
things to be as though quite solidly in place, permanent, taking our experiences and things to be as though separate, solid happenings, which will always, eventually, create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future, solidifying both in our mind. And yet life just simply keeps flowing along. But there's good news. (laughs) An amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute, as the Buddha so clearly tells us in his teachings about the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, that there's a cause, the third noble truth, that there's an end to suffering, and the fourth truth, noble truth, that there's a path leading to the end of suffering. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, during midsummer through early fall, our rainy season, our monsoon season as we call it, in the big open skies of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows, even double rainbows appearing. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's just the right amount of moisture in the air. The angle of the light is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in our life including ourself, all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things, experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree 
to which we'll suffer. Anything we try to hold on to, anything we cling to, from material objects to all of the permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. The other side of the same coin, of course, being pushing away, resistance. Our practice is about present moment awareness, really, truly being in the present moment. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment. Just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's not the present moment that causes the suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment. And on and on and on it goes. Take a look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. There's a saying in English that says, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance isn't bliss. In the brilliant clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned impermanent, contingent states of suffering, not our true nature, just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. I'd like to spend a little bit of time now exploring a few hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice, And in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear can appear in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance. Such feelings as, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe feeling, I can't, I just can't be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or strong emotional state or pain in the body or maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. Maybe feeling frozen or caught 
not able to take the next step, so to say. Fear from this perspective, if we take it up, if we buy it, can manifest outwardly in relation to situations and other people as judgment, blaming, the critical mind. It's his fault. It's because she or they, and you can fill in the blanks there. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being perfect. Whatever that might mean to each of us, something different, I'm sure, if we went around and asked everybody what that means, being perfect. All of this based in fear. A definition uh, of perfection that I actually shared, uh, I think last week or the week before, in a morning reflection, but here it is again, from Chang Su. Maybe a different definition of perfection than you've been carrying around with you. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in identifying with states of judgment, doubt, blaming, criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I often think that we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if we've taken a peek and it's not been easy. One of my teachers used to tell me when I'd come in for a practice interview and fearfully report the experience of fear, he would say, Fear is just fear. When he first told me this, I responded inwardly. I didn't say this out loud. I said, well, that's easy for you to say. Kind of, in my mind, stomped out of the room. (laughs) Clearly a coloration of anger and resistance in those thoughts. But actually, over time, I began to see that, in fact, Fear is just fear. As we gently persevere with our practice of mindfulness, 
and a growing and strengthening open-heartedness based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet, to receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye and not be so bound, so imprisoned by it, to not be shut off to the unknown, not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. As we get stronger, as our mindfulness muscle gets more developed and our heart gets stronger, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. Me. I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on an infinite number of conditions some of which we may know, and many of which we don't and will never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience, but it's clearly not me or mine from this perspective. It's not that the energy of fear will never appear again, but we can learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly, see through it like we see through the hues of a rainbow. This is a poem from Wendell Berry that speaks of this. I go among the trees and sit still All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I'm afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. This is another teaching on fear from Native American writer M. Scott Mamaday. It's called The Fear of Botali. Botali rode among his enemies once, twice, three, and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards he said, Certainly I was afraid, 
I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't work to repress or ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. As you probably well know, they just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states of mind actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not about blindly acting out afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns, strengthening and reinforcing the habit of them. Nor is this practice of ours, this practice based in kindness and mindfulness, about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience if we're caught and swept away in them. There can often be quite a bit of restlessness in the body and in the mind, making it difficult or seemingly impossible to become focused and mindful of our experience in the present moment. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. The intimacy of connection based in mindfulness, in kindness, that's been mentioned so many times by Annie and I. This intimacy in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration. Without pushing experience away or pulling away from it or desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn to work with these difficult, these afflictive states of mind when they're what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So, taking a look, a brief look at anger now. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far, we can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy, and it can be quite seductive from this perspective. I once knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger and spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in this energy. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and move away. She was a very lonely person, and yet so identified with herself 
as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of one's awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective are not available. They vanish. One often feels restless, maybe driven, nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body is tense. With anger, the sense of self looms quite large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line is drawn that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that anger, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary, unpleasant, or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger depends on the quality, the strength and depth of our attention, our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations, with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spitting out the stories of anger or any other emotional state, sadness, disappointment, expectation, etc., it's very helpful to try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations 
in the body, feeling the emotion directly and in itself, including emotional states of delight, happiness. Feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. What are you feeling? Heat, tightness, pressure, contraction? Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of mindful attention. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do with walking meditation. And bring your attention directly into the body with walking. You might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the snow-covered fields, the trees in conjunction with the spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, the squirrels, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body. In those moments of a connected, present moment mindfulness, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present the ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Beyond compare, really, in a quietly wonderful way. And this is from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who Uh, mostly taught in dialogue with his students. And one of his students asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? His response is this, self-identification with the limited, sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. As Wendell Berry 
so eloquently expresses in this poem called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I awaken the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives will be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom, the understanding that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence, that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or even recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, clinging, sadness, etc. I'd like to spend just a few moments now looking at the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our mind, our heart, is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of strong desire and attachment, we're blinded by desire. And there's some misunderstanding in interpreting the Buddha's teaching that desire is a bad thing. Desire is a natural human experience. It's in fact what, at least in part, what got you here to be in retreat. There are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. And there's the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires, for instance, that we project into the future. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to be contented, in order to be really at ease in our life. The thought that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't, that, in fact, it can't. Some years ago now, I received um, 
a prayer in the mail uh, that I was uh, told was one of Mother Teresa's practices. And so I'd like to share it with you, just as it was uh, given to me. This is the practice of what some people have called a saint, an honest saint. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Did she leave anything out? Actually, very shortly after I received this in the mail, a friend called me on the phone and I said, oh, I have to read this to you. I read it to him and he went, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) We do. We have a lot to do. (laughs) But I find it really quite inspiring. We can become quite attached dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire. Expending an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to this or that. Trying to get something back. Trying to keep something or someone from changing. Trying to recreate a changing object, a changing experience. Even here in retreat. Maybe the particular wonderful sitting that you had the other day or in your last retreat. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So a simple, quite mundane example, personal example. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center uh, in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens. I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell, very present, aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But I wanted to stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging, 
and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. And I was feeling a tightness in my body, an irritation in my mind. I got up and I walked away to do what needed to be done, but there was still a clinging to that sweet smell, even though it was gone from my field of experience. I was already attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to that garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly. As we begin to see attachment and clinging, we find out that we're experiencing a kind of tension, a kind of stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think that there's often confusion, delusion, that this yearning, this state of desire, this attachment, feels good. We even sometimes confuse it with love until we really begin to see it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire, a a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. He said the eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning, the ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. And he went on through all the six sense doors this way. He went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. A while ago I found a recipe at risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this recipe with you. It's called A Recipe for Unhappiness. And the ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. And four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. 
Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends. But be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what is an inability to what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And um, a similar teaching, but with a slightly different approach. This is from Nanshin, the Chinese sage Nanshin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe, the recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindful attention, an investigation that's grounded in kindness. A strong and clear mindful attention that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them just as they are can actually learn to experience the extremes of afflictive emotions without getting caught or swept away in them or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. With mindfulness and investigation and clear discernment, the contraction of identification, attachment, to difficult emotional states begins to break up. And the wholesome states of mind, of heart, begin to be more accessible and more often the experience of the moment. We begin to touch the liberation of non-clinging. One way, maybe not your usual way, you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom take root and blossom. And this is from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, and the white lotuses do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that in fact, as human beings, 
we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions. It's not that something has gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourself or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to the identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these so-called poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms, afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them. He quite often used very viscerally descriptive language. Afflictive emotions, cankers, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So just taking a moment to look at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The mind, the heart, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, the clear discriminating mindful awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the strong heart of metta and compassion, bringing the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. We begin to know through our own experience 
the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the set with a poem called Hokusai Says. Hokusai was the Japanese painter some of you may be familiar with. His most famous painting was of a great big wave. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He said, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.